Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy beet treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Two thousand nine hundred and seventy-seven people were killed by nineteen Al Qaeda-backed terrorists on September eleventh, two thousand and one. Today, as immigration and travel bans dominate the news, we begin a several-month exploration of what nine eleven has meant for American government, agencies, policies, and culture. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We missed you all over the break, but we had very exciting news for those who have been following us on social media or are subscribed to our email list, which you should definitely do at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. We released the title of our book and the cover. Yay! <laughs> yeah. yeah, we need a note. We need some uh, Dylan. We need a little yay in there. <laughs> it's very exciting. The book is called, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Gracefield Guide to Political Conversation. It will be out in February 2019. And so we are so excited. Like we said, the email list is how we're really going to be communicating about bonus chapters, 
pre-order offers. Don't freak out if you pre-ordered. You'll still get the bonus offers, but we want to kind of do it in a in a burst because it helps the Amazon algorithm. We want to get up to those top of the charts. So um, we got lots of exciting things happening with the book launch over the next few months. So you definitely want to subscribe to the email list to get all the latest info. We're going to do a lightning round in our first block today, not because every one of these stories is um, one that we think has gotten too much attention. Most of them are pretty important, but we were gone for a week and there's really no way to catch up other than to (laughs) kind of breeze through what happened. So we're going to start with a truly nonsense story, which is Alex Jones's declaration that Democrats were going to begin a second civil war on July 4th. I think everybody's okay. I mean, I would have spent less time making deviled eggs and more time preparing had I known. Although, let's be honest, I didn't make the deviled eggs my husband did. But you know what I mean. I made some deviled eggs this week, too. So social media had a ball with this. Oh, yeah, the letters. The letters were so good. People wrote letters like they were like second civil, like they were survived, like, dear Ma and Pa, the second civil war. They've taken the Starbucks. We're running low on avocado toast. It was funny. They're funny. They're funny. The only thing I really have to say about this is that Alex Jones sits behind a microphone to tell lies in order to sell products. Mm Mm-hmm. And I do not want to do anything, even something really funny, and I'm not criticizing people who did this, but for me, I do not want to do anything that raises his profile one thousandth of a millimeter And every time anyone takes anything he says seriously, pseudo-seriously, not seriously in the national media, it has the effect of hardening, I think, his support. I also want to stop referring to him as a conspiracy theorist, because I think conspiracy theories are things that you believe could possibly be true in good faith, even if they are long shots. And I don't think he for one second believes anything that he says, ever. I think he is just truly, I mean, he's told us in a court filing, which is apparently the only place on earth he feels compelled to be honest, that he thinks of himself as an entertainer. And so I'm just, I'm not interested in Alex Jones. Every time he starts trending on Twitter for some stupid theory, I think we should all just share that article, which he said under oath. It's a character. None of it. I don't really mean any of it. Just share the article. That's all you need to do. Should we move on then? Yes. More importantly... The United States government worked really hard to shake down Ecuador at a World Health Organization meeting this spring to try to uh, roll back a resolution supporting breastfeeding worldwide. Let me and just let me just say, because people again. Okay, I got to say a couple things before you go on. First of all, it wasn't even about, quote unquote, supporting breastfeeding. It was more about limiting inaccurate or misleading marketing about breast milk substitutes. So it was so uncontroversial because it was basically like, hey, let's stop lying about things we can feed to babies and let's focus on breast milk and safe substitutes. And because I saw a lot of discussions on some of the mama groups I'm a member of um, on Facebook that were truly selfish, privileged and unfortunate which everybody made it about like breast milk, breastfeeding versus formula in their own personal lives. Y'all, not about you. Not about you. Wow. Especially when we're talking about a multilateral message that reaches countries where perhaps the information reaching consumers is not as regulated as here in the United States or people don't have access to the internet where they can do their own research as effectively as here in the United States. 
Also acknowledging the long history of formula makers exploiting truly terrible situations in several third world countries and babies dying. Just this is, this is what I'm saying. Note. Like, so this is not about me, middle class white lady, no. and the mommy wars. It's not Ugh. even about the United States and how wealthy our formula manufacturers can get. It is about countries in the world that don't have access to all of the information and resources and education, like countries where people would love to fight the mommy wars, right? Yeah, seriously. That's what this is about. And also, I think it's about the way our government is approaching everything. Mm -hmm. We just seem to refuse to be involved in any kind of agreement that involves more than one other country. Just unapologetic bullying on the behalf of corporate interests, just at every turn. And you know, if just you're gonna every turn. if you're gonna use that tactic successfully, even a schoolyard bully knows that you gotta hold your fire sometimes. Yeah. I would like to understand at what meeting someone said, Okay, what are our priorities to really go out into the world and, and lay the law down? Oh, breastfeeding. Let's yeah, let's put that at the top of the list. And very interesting, we were mostly unsuccessful at our shakedown because Russia ended up introducing uh, the resolution. Man. Saying I mean. that they're not trying to be a hero, but it's wrong when big countries come in and try to push around little countries like this. Oh, mm. my God. I mm. just, I can't. I can't. Speaking of bullying on the behalf of corporate interest, Scott Pruitt's out. Bye, Scott. Happy trails. I mean, I, you would think, yeah, probably like 12 investigations would be too many. I would think perhaps two to three would be the threshold. But I suppose 12 works as well. But Scott Pruitt wasn't fired because of the ethics issues. Scott Pruitt was fired because the president was tired of hearing that Scott Pruitt wanted to be the attorney general. Oh, my God. I can't. And I would be more excited, except I think the guy that replaced him seems to be even more efficient and has less of a penchant for unethical spending and email dumping and soundproof boothing. I just made that word up. I like that word that you made up. I mean, I think Scott Pruitt is an easily expendable drop in the corruption bucket in this administration. And it is hard for me to imagine that his continued presence or departure makes much of a difference in the long run, as long as things proceed on the track that they're on. Is he just going to go to Oklahoma and like either get another public service gig or make a bunch of money working for the oil and gas lobby? That's what's truly unfortunate about it. We'll see. I think eventually... Someone will investigate all the craziness that went on at EPA from a governmental perspective in a very serious way. And I think that there will be consequences in the long run. I don't know what they'll be or how that will shake out. But it's been too public and frankly too bizarre Mm -hmm. and interesting to go under the radar. And also, major shout out to all the journalists who just kept at it on Scott Pruitt. Good job, guys. And the scary thing, I think, probably for the president is where will those journalists spend their time next? I think that's Mm. part of why he's hung on so long, because it was kind of like, look over here at the phone booth or the pants, you know, and and you're distracted from something else. His administration is one long look over here. Well, look over here, because by the time this podcast airs, the president is due to have announced his nominee for the Supreme Court, which is a pretty big deal. I have looked a little bit at the shortlist. I just think it's premature to do any deep dives on the candidates on that shortlist mm-hmm. because this president has such a tendency to change his mind. So when there is a new nominee, we will give you as much information as we can about that person. 
I am a little worried that at the point of we're recording right now on Monday morning that the last people he was talking to was like going to lunch with Giuliani and golfing with Sean Hannity. I don't want to know who their pick and who their priorities are, I'll tell you, to be honest, because then we're going back to the tactical, not strategic, which is a little concerning, but... It'll be an interesting process. Mitch McConnell has weighed in, according to The New York Times, on who he thinks the safest choices are to get through the Senate. McConnell is reportedly worried about Senator Rand Paul, the other senator from Kentucky, and about Senators Collins and Murkowski perhaps voting against President Trump's nominee. What I think is the most troublesome about this entire process, because, look, he's going to nominate who he nominates. Senate's going to do what it does. We have no input or control as voters on this process, really. But then these 501c3s and 4s spending millions of dollars Mm -hmm. on advertising campaigns about supporting the president's nominee, that is troubling. Like, I don't know at what point we decide that we care at all about the integrity of our congressional representatives, and we care Mm. at all about the fact that they are hearing things and reading things and knowing things that we don't. Yeah. But I think this is a terrible sign of where our democracy is when we're having ads run about being loyal to the president and supporting the person he nominates for the Supreme Court. Yeah, it is. It's very disturbing. And I say that as a person who totally believes that, that even this president, but all presidents, you know, constitutionally are supposed to be able to nominate these folks with the advice and consent of the Senate. And I think that that is a a limited role. And so even with that perspective, I think that this is horrible. Well, here's my question, too, with going back to Rand Paul and Murkowski and Collins, because their margin is so thin. I mean, does John McCain have to be present to vote? I don't know the answer to that. Because is that a thing he could do? He seems very, very ill. That's what I keep wondering about. Like, if the margin is so thin and he's so sick, does he have, I don't know. I think that part to me would be where I would be concerned if I was Mitch McConnell. Not to mention what he will do. Right. Right. Lots of it. Lots of maybes around there. The president is going to Helsinki next week to have a summit with Vladimir Putin. Lots of interesting reporting about who is attending that summit. I'm not sure what the objective is or what we expect to come out of it, but that is happening. Also happening, Mike Pompeo continues to be engaged with North Korea. The reporting indicates that North Korea's perspective is that that's not going so well. Mm -hmm. Everything that they're saying has been very predictable if you follow people who have expertise on North Korea. You know, North Korea is doing exactly what the experts expected North Korea to do following the first summit, which is to kind of embarrass the United States and say, whoa, 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 you guys are being big bullies and you are um, asking for unilateral concessions and we just don't know. Did you read the detail about the signed Rocket Man CD? I did, but then I read that that wasn't true. Well, thank God, because I found it truly disturbing that, that he would think, oh, it's really important that you hear this Elton John song that I made fun of you. Let me sign it for you. I think that I'm, I'm about inclined to stop calling what happened a summit. I feel like that lends an air of legitimacy that that meeting does not deserve. A summit implies that, like, agreements were met, conditions were laid out. That's not what happened. They got what they wanted. We got nothing. They'll be using the footage of that in their country, too build up their dictatorship for decades to come. 
And now that we're actually asking for something in return, they're, like you said, doing exactly what people expected them to do. So I don't know. I just feel like we need another word because summit is not accurate. Yeah, I just took a quick look to confirm that the State Department said that they did not deliver that CD. I think the administration has consistently overpromised on North Korea and underdelivered. And you know what? It's okay to have a relationship building period after a very long time of the, of our countries not having any kind of relations except hostile ones. Yeah, that's not okay because his only objective is to win the next news cycle. So that doesn't serve his purpose at all, which is just occupy the news cycle. There's no well, long-term objectives. You also have to be honest with the country about what's happening. You know, the president has said on Twitter that he's confident North Korea will honor the contract signed. Well, it wasn't a contract, right? There, there wasn't specificity yeah. in it. I just don't think Enforced that we're... by who? <laughs> well, it, well, exactly. I mean, when you say contract, it sounds like a real estate deal, right? That's not what happens between two sovereign nations anyway. And it's interesting that we would even recognize this government as legitimate enough to... It's just, there are so many things about this that are complicated and so much more complicated than the way they're being communicated to the American public. And so I'm not ready to side with North Korea and say, yeah, the United States is being awful and not conducting these negotiations well. I just want to see that for what it is, which is what North Korea does. They do propaganda. And I'm fearful that our government is doing propaganda around this topic as well. And so there can be no trust in a situation like that. Yeah, I totally agree. So next up, we are going to have our very first gratitude moment. We're so excited about this. For the last several years in the podcast, we've taken a moment on our Tuesday episodes to compliment the other side. But after um, reading Diana Butler Bass's book, Gratitude, and having her on the show and having an amazing conversation, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to, we have decided to transition from compliment the other side to having a gratitude moment in which we express gratitude for America, for our lives in America, for the things offered by being an American. And I think that for me, I've had to really think through this. We had a month to kind of transition because we did Pride Month moments. And I have to, I had to really think about like, I'm not going to hold myself to a standard of I'm only grateful for things that only exist in America. I think that's an unfair standard. So I just want to put a caveat at the beginning. Like, I think that there are things we will be grateful for that exist in other countries. And I don't think we're implying that this is that with this move, this moment is only about highlighting things uniquely wonderful about America. Agreed. So, my first gratitude moment is I'm currently reading. Well, I finished Rachel Held Evans inspired. Get used to hearing that because I'm going to be talking about it all the time because it's freaking awesome and everybody should read it. Um, it's a very interesting exploration of the Bible through the lens of genres. And she spends a lot of time talking about different types of stories told in the Bible. And one of the types of stories she told was about resistance stories. I want to share a little section here. She says, perhaps the most significant character in any story of resistance is the prophet. Biblically speaking, a prophet isn't a fortune teller or soothsayer who predicts the future, but rather a truth teller who sees things as they really are, past, present, and future, and who challenges their community to both accept that reality and imagine a better one. It is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, wrote Brueggemann in his landmark book, The Prophetic Imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing future alternative to the single ones the king wants to urge us as the only thinkable one. And as I read that, I thought, I have such gratitude for American prophets, the Rachel Carsons, 
the Martin Luther King Juniors, the Susan B. Anthonys, the people who did the truly amazing and difficult work of both calling our attention and speaking truth to power in very difficult, hard ways, but at the same time, pointing us to a hopeful future. Because I think it is easier to criticize and become cynical, and it is difficult. And I think I'm so grateful for the American prophets that are able to do this. I think it is difficult to speak truth to power and shine a light on hard, difficult realities in our American history, while also speaking of hopeful future, of hopeful alternatives, and pointing our eyes to um, greater ideas and to a future in which we get closer to that American ideal. And I'm so grateful for those people. And as I look back over our history and I think of important turning points and people in American history who I really admire, I think the prophets, the American prophets, are the ones that I really draw a lot of strength from. My gratitude today is for our judicial system and specifically for Judge Dana Shabra in California. He is presiding over an ACLU lawsuit against the Trump administration. There are lawsuits like this one happening in 17 other states. His court order uh, received quite a bit of press at the end of June. We were not able to cover it on the podcast because of timing. And so you've probably heard about it. He specifically required federal officials to stop detaining parents apart from their minor children at the border, absent a determination that the parent is unfit or the parent declines reunification. He also ordered that within 14 days, which will run up today as the podcast is released, that all minor children under five had to be reunified with their parents, and that within 30 days, all children older than five had to be reunified with their parents. He mandated that officials provide parents contact with their children by phone within 10 days of the order if the parent was not already in contact with the child. The Trump administration asked for more time on this, and the judge said no, that he might consider individual exceptions, but he was not going to do a blanket extension. The ACLU says that of a list of 102 children under five provided by the Justice Department, it looks like only half will be reunited by the deadline. I'm so grateful that this has happened because, as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, we're both just in horror about what's been happening at the border. And I'm so grateful that our third branch of government is stepping in to do something about that. My gratitude is deepened by the fact that this judge was appointed by George W. Bush. He is married to a hardcore pro-death penalty prosecutor. And that's meaningful to me because, not because I'm a pro-death penalty person, please don't take me wrong on this, but just that This is someone who has been known to be relatively conservative from the bench, who was appointed by a Republican. And I'm just happy that there are still people on the conservative side of the aisle who refuse to buy into the idea that conservative philosophy has given way to Trumpism and that there are people quietly doing their work every day and taking the opportunities that land on their desks 
to step in and say, this is wrong. This is not the way good governance works. His opinion is so critical of the chaos this administration created for itself by implementing this policy without any seeming care for these families or any plan on how it would put these people back together. He talks about how the government monitors money with unbelievable precision and didn't even think about how they were going to get these children back to their parents. And so I'm just I'm very grateful for this judge and for his order and for all of the judges just quietly doing their work every day, trying to effectuate justice under an administration that doesn't seem to prioritize it. So next up, we will begin our series on 9-11, beginning with a timeline of the events on the day itself. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops. 
premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in japan they like a loose flowy look over there to battle the heat i will be adopting that strategy with that skirt pack your bags with high quality essentials from quince go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's q u i n c e dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash pantsuit We are beginning our discussion of 9-11 today. And before we dive in, we want to tell you a little bit about why we're doing this now and what we hope to accomplish and a little bit about how we're going to structure the discussion. So we're starting this before September because we think that the anniversary of 9-11 belongs to the victims and the first responders and all of the people who are still grieving what is a relatively recent tragedy And we want, with this series, to process this from the perspective of how did it influence our government and our governmental agencies, what policies and new governmental agencies have grown from 9-11, and how it has affected us as a culture. And we just feel like that work has been ongoing in bits and pieces, but it's hard to, it's been hard to put it all together in one place. Several listeners reached out to us and said, can you talk about 9-11, especially um, our younger listeners who I think were small or young or not even born perhaps when 9-11 happened. And I think that it's very difficult um, to understand or to process it because we haven't spent a lot of dedicated resources beyond memorializing the victims and the first responders, which was absolutely the first priority. And I think that, you know, there's even some problems with the way that we've chosen to do that, I think, for a lot of people. But the the event itself, what led up to it, what resulted after it, how we were asked to deal with it or not deal with it as a country has lasting consequences. And we really want to talk a lot about that. I want to say something we're not going to talk a lot about because of the lack of processing that we're trying to address The loudest narrative surrounding 9-11 right now, especially outside of the anniversary itself, is conspiracy theories, which is really unfortunate. But I think in a vacuum left in which we as a community and a country and a culture did not dedicate time to processing this event, people were left to process it on their own. And conspiracy theories surface when something feels inexplicable, when it feels too terrible to be real. And the Internet is a Petri dish for that, and it allows, you know, the dark corners for people to process it in their own way. And for better or for worse, psychologically, conspiracy theories are a way people process terrible things. But because that is such a loud voice, because we all, it's, you know, become 
one of the most common things I think people talk about with not around 9-11. We're not actually going to spend a lot of time on the conspiracy theories themselves. We're going to talk about what happened on the day. We're going to talk about the events leading up to 9-11, and we're going to talk about our government response after 9-11 and the, the impact of that that we're still feeling today, as well as carrying the conversation about the grieving and um, trauma experienced by our country over onto the nuanced life. And we're going to talk a lot about the sort of emotional impact on us as a country on that podcast. We want to do all of this with sensitivity for the many people who have personal experience with 9-11. We want to do it with sensitivity for all of the people who were involved governmentally at that time. So while you'll hear some criticism, I want to just start from the beginning by acknowledging nothing like this had happened. Mm -hmm. While there were elements of it that might have been foreseeable with the benefit of hindsight, I have real grace for everyone involved in what happened before and what happened after. And the more I learn about the enormously complex set of actors and circumstances surrounding all of this, the more grace that I find. I also want to say that we are going to describe what happened in a fair amount of detail. This was hard to research. It could be difficult to listen to. So we are going to begin with sort of the World Trade Centers, how they were designed and where they stood on 2001. In 2001, the World Trade Center complex consisted of seven buildings, which included the Twin Towers. When those Twin Towers were built in 1973, they were, at the time, the tallest buildings in the world. Six of the seven buildings in the complex were connected by an underground shopping mall. There was over 13 million square feet of office space in the complex. And the World Trade Center had initially been run by New York's Port Authority. It was privatized in 1998. I thought that the National Geographic's description written on September 13th, 2011, so two days after 9-11, was a good way to talk about perhaps why the World Trade Centers were targeted by al-Qaeda. The sophisticated structure of the slender, crystalline twin towers made them especially inviting symbols of America's achievement. Glass and steel pillars reaching into the clouds, their ethereal surfaces reflecting the changing moods of New York City. The World Trade Center represented the elite and the powerful. Its tenants were household names. It was the financial hub of the country and even, some would argue, the world. To America's enemies, the World Trade Center can be seen to represent America's pervasive cultural and economic economic imperialism. So I want to spend just a few seconds talking about the construction of the World Trade Center, which was very different than the way skyscrapers had been built in the past, which was with, usually they were built with a skeleton of interior supporting columns that support the structure. But the Twin Towers were really radically different in that it was the exterior wall that's used as the load-bearing wall, and the interior columns were located in the core, which contained the elevator. That's going to become really important. And that was made for a lot of different reasons, um, including cost savings and to expand the amount of real estate available for rent. So that was a decision that was made that when it, when it was built in the 70s that I think will become very important as we look at the events on 9-11. So we're going to try to go through the timeline of what happened on 9-11. It can get confusing. There were four flights 
and 19 total terrorists involved in hijacking those flights. And we have each taken responsibility for two of the four flights. So we'll go back and forth a little bit. Even if you know this story, I hope you'll stick with us because as we revisited it, there are so many things that I learned mm-hmm. that I had never known before. As much as this has been covered, as many retrospectives as I've seen, there's so many pieces that were new to me as we did the research for this episode. And I hope that's the case for you too. So one of the first things that um, I didn't know is that two of the main hijackers aboard American Airlines Flight 11 actually flew from Maine on a commuter flight from Maine at 545 that morning on September 11th. They boarded the commuter flight from Maine, and then they flew to Boston's Logan International Airport. They boarded American Airlines Flight 11, which was a Boeing 767. So this is a really big plane, big enough that it has the two aisles down the center. But it was not very full. There were only 92 people aboard the plane. Now, these are big planes, like I said, and they carry a lot of jet fuel. So this Flight 11 was carrying 9,717 gallons of jet fuel. Now, this is 14,000 gallons under its capacity. So it was carrying a lot of jet fuel because it was flying to Los Angeles, but not its max capacity and was also not fully seated. So it was not to its full capacity of seating as, as well. So... The flight takes off at 7.59 a.m. At 8.13 a.m., it was the last direction given by air control that the pilot responded to. So they were told, I I believe, to turn, and they did. And then after that, they no longer responded to air control. Now, from the phone calls from the planes, investigators have been able to piece together a little bit of what happened in the first moments when the hijackers took over the flights. And I'm going to talk a little bit more in detail about the flight attendants in a minute. But there was recordings of the flight attendant saying we can't breathe. They believe that um, some of the hijackers used mace, in particular because one of the hijackers' um, luggage was never put on the plane at Logan, and that later was found to have contained some mace in it. We all know probably at this point that they also had box cutters and attacked several of the passengers. And it seems that they also, from the reports of several of the passengers and flight attendants, um, had sort of fake bombs strapped to their chest in order to intimidate the passengers and scare them. The plane, this first flight, American Airlines Flight 11, contained a passenger who they believe was the first person killed on 9-11. His name was Daniel Lewin. He had served in the Israeli army. He was only 30 years old, and he had actually invented an algorithm for optimizing internet traffic. And it seems as if he tried to protect the cockpit. He was seated in first class. So he exhibited a large amount of bravery, I think, in that scenario. And it's so sad to think about a young man who held such promise being killed as so many were that day. So he seems to have tried to prevent them taking the cockpit. At 8.14 a.m. is when United Airlines Flight 175, another Boeing 767 with 65 people aboard, also takes off from Boston, headed to Los Angeles. It is also not fully seated. It's about 56 people. And there's also 9,000 gallons of jet fuel on that plane as well. At 8.19 a.m., so this is about five minutes after Flight 175 takes that, Flight attendants aboard Flight 11 alert ground personnel that the planes have been hijacked. And I want to take a moment to really talk about these two flight attendants. In a minute, we're going to share some of the audio of one of these calls from Betty Ong and from Madeline Amy Sweeney, who had filled in from another flight attendant who was ill that day. These women were so calm and so collected and exhibited such bravery in calling ground control, giving them specific details about what had happened 
about where the descriptions of the attackers, about where they were seated, their ability to remain calm was instrumental in investigators being able to put together later what happened aboard those flights and who was responsible for these attacks. So I want to share just a little bit of Betty Ong's call to flight control. Flight attendants had been trained to communicate only with the cockpit mm-hmm. in, in hijacking scenarios. And without that being an option, these two flight attendants just had to improvise. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they did that so skillfully and so calmly is just remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There was some interesting writing I read that there was a lot of sort of gendered reporting after 9-11 and that we leaned toward narratives that supported a lot of heroism that we sort of already had stories around. Not that one's better or one's less, but that the 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 stories of these flight attendants sort of got missed. And so I really wanted to take a moment and highlight their bravery for sure. At 8.20, American Airlines Flight 77 took off from Dulles International Airport outside of Washington, D.C. The Boeing 757 was headed to Los Angeles like the other two flights that Sarah just talked about with 64 people on board, two pilots, four flight attendants, 58 passengers, including three elementary school children selected for a trip hosted by National Geographic. All five of these hijackers were flagged by security for extra scrutiny for one reason or another, including that one of them didn't have a photo ID and agents found them to be suspicious. The only consequence of being flagged for this extra scrutiny ended up being that their checked bags were held off the plane until it was confirmed that they had boarded. Three of the hijackers set off metal detectors and had extra screening before boarding the plane. The screeners didn't resolve what set off the alarms and allowed the hijackers to board the plane anyway. And this seems unthinkable today. And the reason that it seems unthinkable today is because we have all been flying in recent Mm -hmm. years in a post 9-11 world. And I think this is one moment to kind of flag as a way in which our our everyday lives substantially changed after 9-11. When you read about the way security was conducted then, it's just unimaginable compared to what we do now. The five hijackers boarded the plane at 7.50 a.m., two of them sat in coach and three in first class. The plane was scheduled to depart at 8.10. It took off at 8.20 and reached its cruising altitude at 8.46. Okay, so this plane takes off at 8.20. At 8.24, the lead hijacker on Flight 11 makes the first of two accidental transmissions. Now, I also read that there is some theory that the, the pilot, before I'm assuming they either attacked him or killed him, pressed a button so that the transmissions would go to ground control before he was forced from the cockpit, or there's some understanding that that maybe he was trying to communicate to the plane's cabin. But either way, they made the first of two accidental transmissions. Now, what is insane to me that I learned about at this time is that the pilot of Flight 175 heard these accidental transmissions um, and I think tried to communicate to air control that there was a plane being hijacked minutes before his own plane was hijacked. 837, Boston Air Traffic Control, based on the calls from the flight attendants, alerts the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, 
Northeast Air Defense Sector, so that's just the sector that defends the Northeast, about the suspected hijacking of Flight 11. In response, Needs scrambles two fighter planes located at Cape Cod's Otis Air National Guard Base to locate and tail Flight 11. They are not yet in the air when Flight 11 crashes into North Tower, and there is some really intense audio of... Um, people thinking, is this a test? No, it's not a test. This is not a drill. This is real. And the problem was that once they said tail flight 11, the hijackers had turned off the transponder. And that was a really easy thing to do. And it's still assuming, I'm assuming an easy thing to do from a cockpit because they have to turn them off when they're landed or else, you know, they wouldn't, it would be a chaos of transponding with all the planes landed at especially big airports. So he turned off the transponder so they couldn't find, they couldn't tell the fighter planes where to go to tail flight 11. And they're also, as you go through all of the agency's responses to this, the idea of a commercial flight Mm -hmm. being weaponized in this way was just new. They just Mm -hmm. weren't prepared for this at all. So a few minutes after that alert to NORAD, United Airlines Flight 93 a Boeing 757 with 44 people, including the hijackers on board, took off from Newark International Airport in New Jersey en route to San Francisco. This flight was supposed to have departed at 8 o'clock, about the same time as the other three planes. It had 48,700 pounds of fuel on board, so much more jet fuel than the other three planes. I think it's, I think it's so important to emphasize that because this plane being late being the one carrying the most jet fuel and being the one, in theory, headed for Washington, D.C., um, had things played out differently, the events of 9-11, I, it would have been, I think, almost incomprehensibly more tragic. Four hijackers boarded this flight. There was likely supposed to be a fifth hijacker. The three other planes had teams of five, but One individual in August had been prevented from immigrating to the United States by an agent in Florida who the 9-11 Commission believes was supposed to be the fifth team member for this flight. So only four hijackers on this plane. One of them had been selected for extra scrutiny by the computerized system that flagged passengers at the time. The security area lacked closed-circuit television monitoring, so we don't know exactly what happened in their screening process, and no one who was interviewed remembered anything suspicious. So at this time, each individual airline was responsible for security screening, and United had contracted that out, and I'm sure lots of other airlines did as well. And so there were vastly different procedures in place and monitoring of those procedures. The four hijackers all sat in first class, one right by the cockpit, two together in row three and one in row six. The flight didn't actually depart until 8.42, so 42 minutes late. Two pilots, five flight attendants, and 37 passengers were on this plane. That was well below the normal passenger count for a flight like this at the time. There has not been any evidence that the hijackers deliberately sought out smaller flights or bought extra seats to facilitate their plans. And Sarah and I were talking before, you can imagine so many different scenarios at every turn as you examine these facts. So think as we talk about United Flight 93 about what the ramifications could have been if the flight had been full. Mm. When the plane took off, the crew was unaware that American 11 had been hijacked. 
Just before 8.25, Boston Center realized that a hijacker on American 11 had used the phrase, quote, we have some planes. But no one at the FAA or the airlines had ever dealt with multiple hijackings, and people were just struggling to get their heads around what was happening. It doesn't seem to have immediately occurred to anyone that they needed to alert other planes in the air of what was going on. So at 8.46 a.m., the hijackers aboard American Airlines Flight 11 crashed the plane into floors 93 through 99 of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. They killed everyone on board, including several children, and hundreds inside the building. Now, this is where the the construction of the World Trade Center is important. Because the columns were located at the interior of the building and not the exterior as they used to be with um, other skyscraper construction, it severs all three emergency stairways. It also severs the water line so that none of the sprinklers are putting out water to help stop the fire. And I think that's really important. So anybody above the 99th floor on the North Tower had no way of getting down because those elevators and stairwells were severed by the plane itself. After the plane crashes in to the North Tower... Within seconds, I mean, the listing on the time, most timelines is 847. So just a minute later, NYPD and FDNY forces dispatch units to the World Trade Center with the Port Authority Police Department officers on site, and they begin the immediate evacuation of the North Tower. At 850, the White House Chief of Staff, Andrew Card, alerted President George W. Bush that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. The president was visiting an elementary school in Sarasota, Florida at the time. He elected to remain in the classroom to keep reading until he knew more. And he wanted, according to everyone who was interviewed at the time, to really project an image of calm and strength. To remember, they didn't know what had happened yet. At first, one plane in the World Trade Center, it seemed like it could have been an accident. They just didn't know yet what was happening. So when the plane hit the North Tower with the 9,000 pounds of jet fuel... And because of the construction of the tower, those inner stairwells and elevator shafts basically acted as a chimney and shot fire up and down. The heat itself from the flight was traveled much faster than the flames themselves. So the upper floors became almost unbearably hot immediately. And just let me take us a, a time out for a, a second to just say that my one small note on the conspiracy theories if a person spouting 9-11 conspiracy theories cannot explain to you the difference between heat and temperature, tell them to shut up. Time back in. That's my time. Only time out for the conspiracy theories. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the heat because I think it's very important in this timeline to talk about um, victims of 9-11 that are difficult to think about, but who I think that we have not done a good job as a society giving them the full attention and the full um, telling their stories in a way that they deserve. So at 8.51 a.m., the first jumper is recorded jumping from the 93rd floor of the first tower. Again, because the heat was so intense, many people jumped from windows surrounding the impact. Now, there are reports from the South Tower of people who could see this happening. And many people report that people were dazed and confused, um, trying to exit, found fresh air and just walked toward it, not realizing what they were doing. But there were also people 
who stepped to the windows and seemingly jumped of, of a, I don't want to use the word choice. It wasn't a choice. But I think that because it's such a difficult thing to talk about, someone being in an impossible position and making a decision that maybe some of us don't understand, we sort of have just avoided talking about these people. But over 200 people are estimated to have jumped from the World Trade Center at that time. There seems to be there was no effort on the on the part of our government to determine who they were. Several victims' have, families have gone out of their way to determine um, or who sort of had an instinct that some of the people in the photos were their loved ones. And some of them, you know, report feeling like they finally got closure. They understood. They knew what happened to their loved one. Um, but then some people just don't want to talk about it, don't want to have, don't want to don't want to face um, sort of any discussion that this is maybe a choice their loved one. Again, don't want to use the word choice. They don't want to have any discussion of the way their loved one died. And, you know, it's it's handled um, in an alcove set off in the, in the 9-11 memorial. There's been a lot of writing and documentaries about some of the photos, especially um, the, the famous photo of the falling man. But I just, it was really important to me to take a moment and talk about the impossible situation that these people found themselves in and not just um, gloss over it because it's really, really difficult to think or talk about. I think that is a theme of this entire day, right? Mm -hmm. People just in impossible, unimaginable situations subject to their instincts, Mm -hmm. right? And um, into just doing the best that they could under the circumstances. Also at 8.51 – the last normal radio communication from American Flight 77, the flight that departed from Washington Dulles, was recorded. The hijacking of that flight began between 8.51 and 8.54. The hijackers used knives to move all the passengers to the back of the plane. One passenger reported that the hijackers had box cutters as well. A hijacker assumed control of the plane and turned it south. He turned off the transponder, as Sarah talked about a minute ago, so that radar contact with the plane was lost. At 9 o'clock, an American Airlines executive learned that Flight 77 wasn't communicating, so that happened pretty quickly. He ordered all American Airlines planes in the Northeast that weren't currently in the air to stay on the ground. After the second tower was hit in New York, American Airlines executives thought that it must have been Flight 77. And when they learned that United was also missing a plane, that's when they ordered a ground stop of all their planes nationwide. At this time, according to the 9-11 Commission report, at least two passengers on Flight 77 called family members from the plane. Renee May called her mother and told her that the plane had been hijacked. She asked her mother to alert American Airlines, and her mother did that right away. Wow. Another passenger, Barbara Olson, called her husband Ted Olson. Ted Olson at the time was the Solicitor General of the United States. The call was cut off about a minute into the conversation, at which time Ted unsuccessfully tried to reach John Ashcroft, the Attorney General. Barbara called back and shared more details. She asked Ted for advice on what she should tell the pilots and the crew to do. And at that time, Ted told Barbara about the World Trade Center crashes. Barbara did not panic, and she did not seem aware that a crash was imminent. She was trying to look out the window to tell Ted where they were. She told him that they were flying over some houses, and the call was cut off. At 8.55 a.m., there was an announcement to the South Tower of the World Trade Center, and everyone was told to stay in their offices and to stay put and not evacuate. I know that this is very difficult to hear or think about, but there were thousands of people in these towers. And I think that the thinking was if they flood the 
streets, it's going to make any sort of evacuation or emergency vehicle movement around the towers any more difficult. Now, this didn't direction to stay put didn't last very long. So at nine o'clock, along with the fl- the calls coming from Flight 77, Flight 175 has also att- several passengers and flight attendants on that plane are making calls as well and reporting very similar things. Um, box cutters, hijacking, the transformers has turned. It's a it's a similar. They were f- clearly following a similar plan. So at 9.02, after the initial instruction of the for the people in the South Tower to stay put, the Port Authority officially broadcast orders to evacuate both towers via the public address system. An estimated 10,000 to 14,000 people are already in the process of evacuating when, at 9.03 a.m., hijackers crash United Airlines Flight 175 into, flower, into floors 75 through 85 of the World Trade Center South Tower killing everyone on board and hundreds inside the building. This is only 17 minutes after the first impact, which is an incredibly short amount of time. Although I will say at this point, I highly recommend um, everyone watching 102 Minutes That Changed America. It's a hun- it's a history channel documentary, and it is just found footage from New Yorkers um, and people in the surrounding area of that day. And it's, 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 the 102 minutes. So it's just, it's um, editing of the audio and the video from that time. And it's really um, impactful to see it unfold in real time and to see how people were putting together what's happening. There is an incredibly um, horrific moment when there are some students at NYU filming from their dorm room and they film as this second flight crashes into the South Tower and just their, their terror, their terror at feeling like we're under attack. It, you know, we are marching through this knowing what we know now. But like Beth said, it wasn't just government officials that couldn't comprehend. Even the people who knew that it was a hijacking from the beginning um, couldn't comprehend what was happening. People on the ground, it was so many people thought that the first plane, it was an accident and they had just accidentally flown into a tower that had happened early in the 20th century with people flying into skyscrapers. It's interesting, and we'll talk about this in the events leading up to 9-11, that the 1993 World Trade Center bombing had more of an impact, I think, on New Yorkers than it did on the rest of America because there were several people in the found footage who say, oh, they came back. This is, remember, they tried 1993. They kind of instantly thought that this was terrorism. But the second plane hitting the South Tower is when you feel the energy in this footage and in the audio and people's terror really shift dramatically. And that's when you start to see the government understanding what's happening as well, because at 9.08, the FAA banned takeoffs of flights going into New York City or through the airspace around the city. At 9.21, the Port Authority closed all bridges and tunnels in the New York City area. At 9.24, the FAA notified needs of the suspected hijacking of Flight 77 because of the calls that were coming from passengers on that plane. And at 9.31, President Bush spoke from Florida and called the events an apparent terrorist attack on the country. So back on board Flight 77. At 9.29, the autopilot on that flight was disengaged. At 9.32, controllers at Dulles observed something on the radar tracking east at a high rate of speed. At 9.34, Ronald Reagan Airport advised the Secret Service that an unknown plane was heading toward the White House. The plane made a 330-degree turn and descended rapidly through 2,200 feet pointed toward the Pentagon. 
the pilot advanced the throttles to maximum power and dove into the Pentagon at 9.37 a.m. The plane was traveling at about 530 miles per hour. Everyone on board and 125 civilians and military personnel at the Pentagon were killed. Now, this was a part of the building, correct me if I'm wrong, that was sort of under construction. So it was actually not as fully staffed as other parts of the building. So at 9.42 a.m., for the first time in American history, the FAA grounds all flights over or bound for the continental United States. Some 3,300 commercial flights and 1,200 private planes are guided to airports in Canada, United States, over the next two and a half hours. I have several friends that were in flights or grounded in several parts across the world. And um, I think that the impact of people, of this decision was really um, far-reaching and and brought home the seriousness of the events in a real way for people all over the world. It's also a place to say as much as you can fault the FAA, and you can for many things that happened, it is amazing that all these planes landed safely. Mm-hmm. It is amazing. When you think about You're trying to make these decisions as you come to understand that your planes have been hijacked in a way that you've never anticipated or trained for. And you've got all the other all these other planes in the air. And I'll talk more in a second about how some of the folks who were starting to understand what was happening started identifying other planes that would have been good candidates for hijacking. And so they're worried about those planes. But you have all these planes in the air and then you've got to get them all down safely. And that happened professionally in an orderly way without a whole lot of um, wreckage or chaos or Mm -hmm. problems. And that's incredible. And a whole lot of people had to do an excellent job in unprecedented circumstances making that happen. Mm -hmm. The White House at 945 and the U.S. Capitol building were evacuated, along with quite a few other high-profile buildings, landmarks, and public spaces. There were myriad Conference calls being rapidly put together, you know, as they're trying to secure everyone, they're also trying to connect the military with the FAA, with the airlines. You can imagine the scramble bureaucratically that no one was prepared for trying to get together. People were very frustrated about who was on certain calls and who wasn't on the calls. They were frustrated because they were operating on such limited information. And at the same time, The president is down in Florida. Dick Cheney is being evacuated as the vice president. They're trying to keep the president and the vice president in touch with one another. There's a whole section of the 9-11 Commission report devoted to the communications between the president and the vice president and the orders that were given and the authority that was granted at particular times. It was it was a really chaotic period. I want to take um, a minute while we're talking about evacuations, um, which were very chaotic, to talk about one story that's really stuck with me. This is the story of Rick Rascorla, who is known as the man who saw it coming. He was the director of security for Morgan Stanley. He, after the 1993 attack, felt very strongly that at the time the firm was known as Dean Witter, that they should move out of the towers Um, They basically neglected his advice, but he stayed as a security consultant. And he really felt like that the tenants of now Morgan Stanley couldn't depend on the first responders and that that they needed to have take the security of their firm into their own hands. And so he had all the he would do all these security drills with people. And the day of the attack, 
all that training and all of his insistence on looking at the the risk involved after 1993 and all these drills really paid off. And then during the evacuation, he is credited with saving over 2,000 people, leading over 2,000 people in the evacuation out of the tower. And um, he was last seen going back up looking for any stragglers, and he was killed in the attack. Something that I read about him said you should learn his story and have patience with that one person in your office who's obsessed with disaster yep. scenarios, mm-hmm. which really hit home with me. Yeah. I thought that that was um, – speaking of the prophets, like we were talking about, the people that are like, no, we have, to, we have to pay attention to this, that he tried to get them to move to New Jersey and all these things. I think it was such a powerful story that I've thought a lot about during our research. Okay. So at 9.59 a.m., the South Tower of the World Trade Center collapses in just 10 seconds after burning for 66 minutes, killing all 800 people inside. The South Tower actually was, of course, the second tower hit. But because it was hit lower in the structure, it was believed to have affected the core structure, burned hotter and burned in the middle. And so the collapse, that's why it collapsed before the North Tower So between the first crash and the second crash and the third crash, you have all these agencies trying to figure out what to do. At 9.07 a.m., FAA controllers at Boston Center requested that Herndon Command Center tell planes in the air to increase their cockpit security. Hmm. But there's no evidence that Herndon did that. Hmm. Boston Center started worrying that a particular Delta transcontinental flight could be in danger. That flight had not been hijacked, but based on what they saw from the first two flights, they were concerned that that one might be as well. FAA air traffic controllers later testified to the 9-11 Commission that air carriers, not the FAA, were responsible for notifying planes of security problems. They said it wasn't the FAA's place to order the airlines what to tell their pilots. Mm. American Airlines seems not to have sent any cockpit warnings. United didn't share that information with pilots in the air until 9-19 when a dispatcher on his own took the initiative to transmit warnings to his 16 flights that he was responsible for. Good that for man's that name was Ed Ballinger. And he was giving the message to all 16 of his flights. Flight 93 was one of his flights. At 9-24, he told the pilots of Flight 93, to take extra care in the cockpit because of these hijackings. Two minutes later, the pilot asked Ed to confirm that message and sounded a little bit confused. They had been in the air for 46 minutes. They were having a normal flight so far. And then two minutes later, the hijackers attacked that plane. The plane dropped 700 feet very rapidly over eastern Ohio. The pilot issued a mayday 11 seconds into the descent, and his transmission picked up sounds of a physical struggle in the cockpit. 35 seconds later, there was another radio transmission in which you can hear the captain or the first officer shouting, hey, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. At 9.32, a hijacker announced to the passengers on that flight, ladies and gentlemen, hear the captain. Please sit down. Keep remaining sitting. We have a bomb on board, so sit. The flight data recorder also recovered indicates that the hijacking pilot then instructed the plane's autopilot to turn the aircraft around and head east. 
The voice recorder indicates that a flight attendant was being held captive in the cockpit. She struggled with one of the hijackers who killed or otherwise silenced her at that point. So the passengers on flight 93 start calling friends and family. And these calls were really important because by now people on the ground knew about the World Trade Centers. And so they are communicating to the people on this plane what's happened elsewhere. The hijackers of this plane tried to make a second announcement telling the passengers that there was a bomb on board and that the plane was going back to the airport. But the hijacker broadcast his message to Cleveland's air traffic control instead of to the passengers. And the 9-11 Commission report says that this probably was because this particular hijacker had never flown a commercial airliner and just didn't know how to work the radio and the intercom. So it was probably just a mistake that he broadcast in the wrong way. Passengers making calls aboard Flight 93 told friends that the hijackers had knives, that they were wearing red bandanas, and had forced them all to the back of the plane, just like in the other scenarios. One passenger had been stabbed, and they saw two people lying on the floor of the cabin, which possibly were the captain and the first officer. One caller on this plane thought that the hijackers might have a gun, but no one else corroborated that, and there has never been any evidence to indicate that guns were on board. It also sounds to investigators like the bomb threats on all four flights were fake because no trace of explosives were found at the crash sites. So they think that they just mentioned bombs to try to intimidate passengers and keep them from realizing what was really happening. So as the passengers on Flight 93 are realizing what's happened elsewhere, they start sharing information from their calls with each other and talking about an attempt to revolt against the hijackers. One person said that the passengers voted on whether to rush the terrorist and retake the plane. And at 9.57, that's what they did. One caller ended her message by saying, everyone's running up to first class. I've got to go. Bye. And I don't know why that detail struck me so hard, but it really did. The passengers mounted a sustained assault on the terrorists. The pilot tried to knock them down by turning the plane sharply left to right several times and pitching the nose of the plane up and down. And in recordings, you can hear loud thumps and crashes and shouts and breaking glass, but the passengers kept at it. I just wanted to read directly from the 9-11 Commission report about what happened next. At 10 o'clock and 26 seconds, a passenger in the background said, In the cockpit, if we don't, we'll die. 16 seconds later, a passenger yelled, Roll it. Jarrah, who was the pilot, stopped the violent maneuvers at about 10 o'clock and one minute and said, Allah is the greatest. Allah is the greatest. He then asked another hijacker in the cockpit, Is that it? I mean, shall we put it down? To which the other replied, yes, put it in it and pull it down. The passengers continued their assault, and at 10.02 and 23 seconds, a hijacker said, pull it down, pull it down. The hijackers remained at the controls, but must have judged that the passengers were only seconds from overcoming them. The airplane headed down. The control wheel was turned hard to the right. The airplane rolled onto its back, and one of the hijackers began shouting, Allah is the greatest. Allah is the greatest. 
With the sounds of the passenger counterattack continuing, the aircraft plowed into an empty field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania at 580 miles per hour, about 20 minutes flying time from Washington, D.C. Their objective was to crash the airliner into symbols of the American Republic, the Capitol, or the White House. They were defeated by the alerted, unarmed passengers of United 93. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earthbreeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And... Even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, God, I love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off EarthBreeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. I 
I just, I can't stop thinking about how different things would have been had that flight not been delayed and had those passengers not done what they did. You know, a theme for me as I have been reading all about what happened that day was thinking about how difficult it is to find the right balance between chain of command and decentralized decision making. Mm. Because none of this had been anticipated, really the people who were able to effectuate the most change that day were disconnected from any authority. You know, they just, the flight attendants who in the moment decided to make calls and the passengers on this plane who in the moment band together to rush the cockpit. And elsewhere, decisions were stuck, running from decision maker to decision maker, um, trying to just understand what happened and put the right teams and the right responses together. And we need a balance of those things. Mm -hmm. But that's something that I've thought a lot about. What is the appropriate balance between structures and decentralization of decisions based on just what is in front of you in these unanticipated circumstances? So at 10.02, this plane crashes. 20 minutes later, approximately at 10.28 a.m., the World Trade Center's North Tower collapses. It's 102 minutes after being struck by Flight 11, killing 1,600 people inside. At 11.02 a.m., Mayor Ruta Giuliani calls for the evacuation of Lower Manhattan south of Canal Street, including more than one million residents, workers, and tourists as efforts continue through the aftermath to search for the survivors at the World Trade Center site. I got to tell you, in the 102 Minutes documentary, I, I don't think I fully comprehended what the collapse of the buildings were like. Now, because of we talked about the structure of the World Trade Center complex, there was um, basically a pit, and the buildings went into the pit um, but this mushroom cloud, um, you know, in some of the footage, it seems like the people are – it sounds like the camera is underwater. It is just all-consuming. Um, it looks like the apocalypse, just a total war zone. You know, the the heat from these buildings and their collapse burned out cars parked around the World Trade Center. So you see these burned out shells of vehicles and people – I mean, it – People are running for their lives from this cloud. They don't know what's coming behind them. Um, it's just, it's so hard to watch and to comprehend the fear that people must have felt as this cloud just rolls through lower Manhattan. And then as, once this evacuation is called, I mean, then you just, you don't just have the mushroom cloud rolling, you just have a river of people exiting the island, walking across bridges, getting on boats, um, helping each other where they can. It's it's just, it's unbelievable. At 1230, there were 13 first responders and one citizen rescued from the North Tower stairwell B, which is really unbelievable to think about that these people survived, you know, a hundred plus story building falling on top of them and lived to tell the tale. At one o'clock, President Bush at an Air Force base in Louisiana announced that the U.S. military forces would be on high alert worldwide. At 2.51 p.m., the U.S. Navy dispatched missile destroyers to New York and Washington, D.C. 5.20 p.m., the 47-story 7 World Trade Center collapses after burning for hours. The building had been evacuated. There are no casualties, though the collapse forces rescue workers to flee for their lives once again. 
President Bush returned to the White House at 6.58 p.m. after stops at military bases in Louisiana and Nebraska. At 8.30, he addressed the nation, calling the attacks evil, despicable acts of terror and declaring that America, its friends, and allies would stand together to win the war against terrorism. And that's pretty significant because up until this point, President Bush had not intended to be a foreign policy president. This was not what he ran to do. And I think that the image we have of George W. Bush today is so different than the image we might have had of him had these attacks not happened. And that's not a positive or a negative comment. It's just an observation. And you can tell, I think, in reading some of what happened this day and some of his communications with Dick Cheney that early on he was really struggling with taking on the commander-in-chief role under these circumstances. I think we were all struggling under these circumstances. Absolutely. And that's what we're going to talk about more in detail. Next week's Tuesday's episode, we will be talking in detail about the events leading up to 9-11, both with regards to al-Qaeda and with regards to sort of the history of some of our governmental agencies that led to the way they were interacting um, in the time before 9-11. You know, as we stated at the start of this show and this series, it's really important for us to just spend some time and to bear witness to the horrific events of that day. So we have walked you through a timeline, but I highly encourage everyone to spend some time looking at some of the really, really great resources online. The 9-11 Memorial has a really great timeline that we'll link to. We're going to put together a blog post with all our resources that we've used in doing our research. Um, Beth has been reading the 9-11 Commission reports. The There are, you know, stories of the victims and people whose lives were lost that day. I just think that it's a really powerful and important exercise as American citizens to spend some time grieving and thinking through the tragic events of that day. And, you know, the the timeline we put together today is just the beginning. We're going to make the awkward transition now to close out the show, hopefully on a more uplifting note talking about what's on our minds outside of politics. What's on your mind outside of politics, Beth? I've been thinking a lot about the ways that we each contribute to our culture and specifically about putting kindness into practice. And and that has led me to think a lot about the service industry and the way we behave ourselves at restaurants. So Mm -hmm. I've been trying to kind of put together like – some things that are just important to me for my family to do every time we eat at a restaurant. So one of those things is like just keeping the table clean. I try to always pick up all the straw paper and all the napkins and any dishes that we're finished with. I try to stack. And before we leave the table, I try to put the cups and the silverware, the silverware in the cups. My husband's always like, are you trying to get a job here? (laughs) But, But you know what? I just think, why would I not clean up after myself? Right. I'm a guest in this establishment. Yes, I paid for the food, but I also can make someone's day go a little bit faster, right? Cleaning up my table, especially because we have small children. I really try to pick up things that have gone on the floor or whatever. Um, obvi- you know, obviously leaving good tips, I think, is really important. But I've been trying to think beyond the tip, you know, what are the ways that we can contribute? And so 
The other thing I've been really focused on is using social media as a place not to complain about service, but to uplift service. So Mm. anytime I get great service at a restaurant or a retail establishment, whatever, I try to go onto Twitter and identify the place and the name of the person and tag that official account. And I'm surprised at how often I get a response and they say we're forwarding this to the store manager or whatever. And I hope that really good things happen for those people. That costs me nothing. It takes 10 seconds. But if you have other ideas, especially if you're in retail or the service industry, I would love to hear about ways that all of us can make your lives easier because those are really hard jobs. And I feel like interacting with the public has become just a nightmare. (sighs) So much so that we all just kind of accept it. And I don't want to accept it. I want to do better. And so mm-hmm. educate me on ways that we can do better if you know. And if you want to make a difference, I hope that some of the things that I'm doing maybe inspire you to do that as well. I love that. Nicholas had a friend in law school who talked about um, – I think I don't know if they were having a conversation about like luxury or where they spend their money or what. But he was basically like, I over tip. It's like it's such a small investment mm-hmm. to feel like such a hot shot. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you spend such a little amount of money and you just feel like it's such a great feeling. So I highly recommend not just good tipping, just over tipping. Like just every once in a while, I'll just do like – a truly like dumb amount, dumb amount, like 50% or something. It just, it feels so good every time. And it's such a small investment of your money to feel so awesome and to make somebody's day so great. Highly recommend over tipping. So I wanted to share something I heard on um, one of my favorite podcasts on Bean. In one of the recent shows, peacemaker John Paul Lederach tells a story of his mentor, Elise Boulding, who he says often encouraged her students to engage in the following thought experiment, which uh, on being titled The 200-Year Present. It says, recall the oldest person who held you when you were a baby. Note their birth year. Now think about the youngest person of your extended family and note their birth year. You were held and touched, and you will touch the lives of people that cover a 200-year present. The work of change is the work of our lifetimes and in service of many other lifetimes. And I just thought that was so beautiful. You know, I was held when I was born by my great-great-grandmother, Maudie Good. She was born in 1890. Felix is the youngest member of my extended family. He was born in 2015. Um, I certainly hope Felix lives to see 2090. So I think it's such a beautiful way to put into perspective our own lives and the work of our lifetimes, um, particularly helpful as I was working through the 9-11 research, to think through the, the connections we all hold, not just to each other right now in the present moment, but the connection we hold to people who lived before us and those who will live after us. Um, it was a beautiful quote. It says, we, young and old together, hold the future in our hands. If our common life is to have any chance of becoming more just and more loving, it will take an intergenerational effort. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Fancy Politics. We'll be back with you on The Nuanced Life on Wednesday here again on Friday. On Friday here, we are going to take a little shift from 9-11. So that's kind of going to be our pattern. We'll focus on 9-11 in the main segment on our Tuesday episodes and share something else with you on Friday. This Friday, Emily Jane Fox will be our guest to talk about her new book, Born Trump, which is sort of equal parts interesting, gossipy read on the lives of the Trump children. But more importantly, I think 
a picture of the brokenness of the family that is now in the White House. So Emily Jane Fox will be with us on Friday. Until then, keep it new on still. Fancy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram. 